You're able to clap. That was pretty good. Uh, good morning. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're brand new uh, this morning, uh, again, we want to welcome you to the Hiawatha Church. We've been in a, a sermon series in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And so it's the very uh, beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of uh, creation, of the history of, of the universe. And so at the, at the very beginning, we saw God create and fill the universe uh, with, with uh, all different kinds of land and water and animals and plants and, and mankind. And then in, in Genesis 3, a few chapters later, we saw the fall. We saw this great rebellion against God and sin and death entered the world. And ever since then, the rest of Genesis we've seen from Genesis 3 on, uh, we've seen this downward spiral of sin and death and depravity and destruction and suffering and darkness. And it, it is amidst this story, amidst this dark backdrop, that uh, the book of Genesis now focuses on a new character. Genesis 12 and on focuses on this guy named Abram and his family. So for the next 38 chapters, we're going to be following this one guy and his family. So this guy named Abram, uh, last week, he he first came up uh, in the book of Genesis. And so we saw in uh, the beginning of chapter 12, God calls this man Abram. This guy is uh, in a foreign land. He's worshiping pagan gods. He's worshiping idols, and God calls him out of that land, away from his extended family, away from his tribe, away from the security that he knows, and to move to a foreign land. So we looked at this map last week. So Abram is from Earth. So on the far right, there's a circle there, and God calls him out of there, and him and his wife and uh, their servants, they leave Ur, they go north, and then you can kind of follow that line. And then the, the big circle kind of in the center there next to the Mediterranean Sea, that's, that's Canaan. That's the, the land that God has promised to Abram. And at the end of our story, they were in that land. And it's a good thing. God promised them a land. God promised he'd make them a great nation. And they were in the land. But we're going to see in this week a great problem arises even right away, even just the next verse. They're actually out of the land, out of where God has called them to. And now... We're going to see, if you follow that arrow, they're going to be in Egypt um, this week. So you can kind of see Egypt there on the bottom left. So big problem in the story right away. The first verse we're going to read, we're going to see that even though they left their home and they're in, they were in this new promised land that God was going to give to them, uh, right away they leave the land again. So we're going to see uh, that. Before we jump into our passage, there's kind of two things we need to, to remember or to, to know about Abram before we start to look at our passage today. So stuff that we saw last week in, in uh, chapter 12, the first uh, nine verses, one through nine. First thing is that Abram wasn't a righteous guy. So Abram, who later becomes Abraham in the story, you probably heard about him, maybe not. One of the most famous people in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, kind of the, one of the fathers of the faith. Uh, God called him, like I said, while he was worshiping false gods, while he was bowing and sacrificing to pagan demons, God called him. So he wasn't a righteous guy. God didn't just look across the earth and say, hey, ooh, there's Abram. He's, he's a really good priest for me, or he's a great prophet, or he's doing a really good job of loving his neighbor. But rather, God called him out of sin, called him out of false god worship, saved him out of that, and told him to go to a new place, a new land that he would give him. 
And we see in the New Testament, looking back at Abram, and they, they describe him as, as a man of having great faith. And we see that uh, in, in last week's passage. At the, when we first are introduced to Abram, we see great faith. He leaves his extended family. He leaves his tribe. He leaves the security of having people around his life that will protect him. He leaves a country and a land that he's familiar with, and he goes to, to a faraway land. So we see uh, this great faith that Abram has, but to be clear, he's not a righteous guy. Rather, he's chosen and responds in faith to God. Secondly, we need to remember is that uh, in last week's passage, God begins to covenant with Abram. So he begins to make a promise with this guy, Abram. And it'll, it'll be uh, expanded on later in Genesis. God kind of comes back to Abram a, a few different times and kind of expands or makes even more clear what this covenant will look like. But last week it started with uh, some of this stuff. God, God promised Abraham in verses 2 and 3 from last week. He says to him, I will make you a great nation. So right now, Abram and his wife Sarai don't have any kids. So for them to come, become a great nation, he has to bless them with children, right? They have to have offspring. So when God promises that he will make Abram a great nation, we should be thinking lots and lots of babies, kids, grandkids, great-great-grandkids, great-great-great-grandkids. I'll make you a great nation, he says, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So we see God tell Abram, you're not great right now, but I'm going to make you great. And it's not just so that you're great, but there's a so that. So that others will be blessed through you. So that you will be a blessing to others. That's why I'm going to bring greatness to you, Abram. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promises Abram that he'll become a great nation. So even though his wife is getting old right now and they still don't have kids, God promises, I'm going to do something. I'm going to create life where there isn't life. I'm going to give you so much offspring that he later describes it as as many, as many children as the stars in the sky. And he promises to that offspring uh, a land a land where he will, will dwell with his people and take care of his people. It's kind of like a return to an Eden-like existence, a return to the way it was before sin and death and rebellion entered the world. So God promises Abram many offspring. And he also says later on in the story that through your offspring, singular, all the nations of the world will be blessed. We'll, we'll unpack that a little bit later on in the sermon this morning. But we're... we're we're going to see that God's plan ultimately was through Abraham, through his seed, through his offspring, Jesus Christ. We, we now know uh, that the entire world will be blessed. And we'll unpack that in just a little bit. So like I said, at the beginning of our story, we see that there's a problem. God, God says, leave your country, come to this new land I will give you. In the beginning of our passage today, we see a problem. We see them not, not in the land. So today's sermon is entitled, Abram and Sarai, in Egypt. And we're going to be looking at Genesis uh, 12, uh, the rest of the chapter, verses 10 through 20. So pray with me and then we will uh, get started. God, we thank you for this passage that shows us your sovereignty, your power, your forgiveness, your pursuit of rebellious people just like us. God, your great salvation that's dependent on you and your mercy and, and not on us and our works. So Holy Spirit, uh, teach us this morning, open our eyes to see this, convict us of sin, Remind us who we are in Christ and do that through, through your word and through the power of your spirit. 
praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, you can follow along on the screen or you can turn in your Bible or your device to uh, Genesis 12. We're going to start by reading the verses 10 through 16. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So Abram is in the land that God has promised him, but then a famine comes up. And so if you know anything about Egypt or ancient Egypt, the Nile River runs through it, and so there's, it's, it's a very plentiful land. The famine would either not be there or it would be a lot less severe because of the Nile. And so we see that other places in the Bible as well as just in ancient texts that, that Egypt was always a very fertile place when there was famine, when there was problems like that. So Abram and Sarah, they left their country and went to Egypt. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, and it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the prince, princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So right now, whether literally or, or figuratively, we should all be shaking our heads, right? Saying, what are you doing, you horrible, cowardly husband? That is, for the sake of your own skin, selling off your wife so that you don't die. Putting her through that just so your own skin is saved. Out of, out of fear for his own safety, not his wife's. Note that. Abram comes up with a plan to save himself. Look at verses 12 and 13 too. Just all the, all the me and I, the, the selfish language here. He says, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So Sarai is beautiful, and Abram thinks, well, the, the Egyptians are going to notice, and then they're going to want to take you as their wife, and they're going to kill me. So instead, I'm going to come up with a plan. You're going to lie. You're going you're gonna to say that you're not my wife. You're going to say that you're just my sister, and then, you won't, then I won't be killed, and it will go well for me, he says. Some, some commentators kind of think that maybe he was trying to protect her, because uh, maybe as her brother, he could have a little more wiggle room or freedom to kind of keep a marriage from happening or something like that. But I think that that argument is actually really weak, especially since later on in the story, Abram does this exact same thing again. And this time he even says, uh, lie and tell the king that you're my sister. This is how you can show your love for me. So manipulative and ugh. And when they do enter Egypt, that's exactly what happens. What Abraham fears will happen does happen. The people see Sarai and her beauty and they notice it. They talk about it. They tell the, the, the princes or the princes see it. And then they tell Pharaoh. And essentially... What Abram does is he pimps out his wife to Pharaoh. The Egyptians see her beauty, and the king hears about it. And then Pharaoh takes Sarai as his wife, 
and into his harem. And in return for giving up his wife, Abram becomes very wealthy. He's compensated with all different kinds of livestock and servants. So just to be very clear, right here, sex trafficking is a horrible, horrible sin. So if you don't know what that term means, sex trafficking, it essentially just means buying and selling of people for sex. And we see that's what Abram is doing here in this story. And just because we see one of we see someone in the Bible doing something, even someone who's a quote-unquote hero or, or father of the faith, does not mean that the Bible is supporting or condoning what is going on. Often in the Bible, there's just bad examples. There's just horrible people, and it, 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 the Bible describes their lives and what they did. Maybe one reason God allows us to see these stories or has these stories written down of these just horrible events, these great evils, is that he wants us to show us the downward spiral that humanity always takes apart from him. Like we've seen so far in Genesis. When Abram took matters into his own hands, when he didn't trust God or his promises, this is where it naturally leads. And in our case now in Genesis, we have to remember we're reading the book, or we're reading the genre of narrative, right? This is not a, this is not a letter written to a church from an apostle saying, church, do these things, but rather it's narrative, it's story. And so it is describing something that is going on. So it's not a command, nor is it uh, being condoned. But God still put it in the Bible for a reason. He chose to have the first readers, the descendants of Abraham, know about this great folly that he did, as well as he wants us to know today that this happened. So just to be clear, just like if we would read the Star Tribune and not think that they are endorsing or condoning a murder by one of their reporters reporting on it. The Bible, should, it, or the Bible is not endorsing sin when we see it in its narrative. So there's lots of really messed up things going on in today's passage. But for a moment, we're going to focus on one of those. First time it comes up in Genesis, as well as just a really important topic that Christians care a lot about, which is, like I said, sex trafficking. And so since it came up, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that. So just to be very clear, in case it wasn't obvious, what, what Abram did is he sold his wife out of fear of injury to his own, his own self. He sold his wife into a pagan king's harem and received great wealth because of that. He sold his wife into slavery and profited, it, profited from it. He pimped out his wife, sending her in to the bedroom of a foreign king that worshipped foreign gods. So one of the big reasons, and there are many, that sex trafficking is so evil, and whether it's sex trafficking or prostitution, pornography, one-night stands, all different kinds of, of uh, sexual immorality and evil, the reason, one of the big reasons that it is so evil is, is, is that it dehumanizes people. It turns people that are created and loved created in the image of God and loved by him so much that he would die for them, it turns those people into objects, a means to an end, and a way for the powerful to manipulate and oppress those who are weak. And the Bible calls, all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, calls uh, God's people to be people who fight against injustice and against evil, and to be people who are uh, full of justice and mercy. In the Old Testament, uh, a little bit later on in the story, um, 
God's people are back in Egypt. They're being oppressed. They're slaves. They're suffering for 400 years in Egypt, and God saves them out of there. And then God gives them laws and commandments and says, uh, take care of the fatherless and the widow and, and, and people who don't have power and people who can easily be manipulated or taken advantage of. Take care of those people because that's who you were back in Egypt, because I saved you out of that. And then again, in the New Testament, even more clear, uh, the Bible teaches that we should take care of orphans and widows and, and people who uh, just don't have power, people who can be easily manipulated and taken advantage of because that's who we were spiritually. We were spiritual slaves. We were dead in our sin. We were diseased with, with a sickness that would lead to eternal destruction. And we were saved from that. So the reason that Christians are about mercy and justice and fight oppression and injustice and evil is because God has first done that for us. It's a response to how our God has, has loved and, and taken care and saved us. So sex trafficking is actually the antithesis of the gospel. It's the opposite of the gospel. It says that I can use and abuse someone, see them as less than human because I'm better, more important or more powerful than my victim. It's the opposite of the gospel. Whereas the gospel says Jesus chose to empty himself, to give up his power and importance, to be used and abused in our place in order to give us life and full humanity. You maybe think that this is, is a problem that happened in the ancient world or maybe in uh, developing nations right now, but it's actually a very real problem that's still happening today and happening within our city. 2003, Minneapolis was identified by the FBI as one of the 13 cities with a large concentration of child prostitution enterprises. And by very conservative measures, a November 2010 study found that each month in Minnesota, at least 213 underage girls are sold for sex, an average of five times per day through the internet and escort services. This, num this number does not even include hotels, street gangs, street or gang activity. So whether you have a daughter or not, whether you know someone who's been hurt like this or not, this should just crush you. It should make us feel so... So sad to hear about this, this great evil that's, that happened to Sarai thousands of years ago and is happening right now in our city. So whether you've seen movies like Taken or maybe Slumdog Millionaire and you've kind of seen how this happens or um, just the, the, the underbelly of, of this evil that happens in, all over the place or whether you know of some uh, organizations that help fight against this like Breaking Free, which is one that is local here in the Twin Cities or more international ones like Nightlight or Shared Hope. You maybe have heard about this, or maybe today this is brand new to you. Maybe you had no idea that this still actually not only happens in this world, but happens in our city, happens in the Mall of America, happens in our suburbs, happens downtown as well. And like Sarai, most of these women, most of these children, they're victims. They're not criminals, and they'd want to leave if they could. Many of us have been told that there's kind of this caricature of, of, of prostitutes or uh, people in the, the sex industry that they're, they're consent, consenting adults that have made or have choices. They could get off they want, but they, they want to be in that line of work or they're just you know, evil people that, that want to do that type of stuff. 
when in actuality, that's, that's a caricature and not true for, for the vast majority of them. Like Sarah, most are victims. And when asked, uh, almost 90% of them used in prostitution would get out if they could, but they just don't know how. They don't have the means. They don't know how to. They're afraid for their life. The United Nations estimates that 27 million people today are enslaved worldwide, more than any other time in history. 80% of them are female, and half of them are children. Let us kind of break down how this looks. The common age that many victims enter sex trafficking is between 12 and 14. Not consenting adults, not 20-somethings that choose to do this, but rather young girls especially. Pimps find their victims all over the place, things through social media, through their neighborhoods, through bars, through schools, things like that. And they lure them with promises of protection. So you have an abusive father at home and you've run away, we can protect you from that. Or there's gangs all over our streets and you feel unsafe, we can protect you from that. Or whether it's love, maybe they've never had a family that's loved them or a parent that's loved them or a boyfriend that's loved them and finally someone takes notice of them and they're allured by that by an older guy. Maybe adventure. Often they'll pull up in you know nice SUVs or wearing nice clothes and say, hey, we'll take you to Miami. We'll go to Vegas or you can come, you can come party with us and the downward spiral leads into being, being taken advantage of. Or maybe home. Lots, lots of these uh, people who end up in sex trafficking are homeless. They're either runaway, they're homeless, they're foster children bouncing from, from house to house, and they just need a home. They just need a place to stay. And in order to get a roof above their heads, they have to pay for it in other ways. As far as who buys these people, 99% of the buyers in the sex trafficking world are male. So guys, men, this is, this is our problem. Whether or not you're a part of this or not, this is a guy problem. If there wasn't a demand for it, there wouldn't need to be a supply for it. And like I said earlier, lots of the risk factors lead to, to, to children, to girls um, going into this. Prior sexual abuse, that's all they've ever known. And so getting caught up in this is something they just get taken advantage of again, whether it's foster care or runaway or homeless. They just don't have a home. They don't have parents. They don't have people that are taking care of them and loving them. So let me just tell you a common story, okay? Obviously, there's many different ones out there, but this is a very common story of someone who is a victim of sex trafficking. Maybe they were kidnapped. Maybe they were a runaway or part of a foster care system, or maybe there's a previous victim of violence. They've always been beaten as a child or, or abused. Maybe they're a victim of, of rape or incest, and so that's all they know. Or so they're looking finally for someone who will just love them and take care of them or rescue from that, and they're taking advantage of that. They meet someone who will take them in that says that they love them. It's actually disgusting, but many pimps are called father by the girls that they, that they own. And so these girls desire to have family. They desire to have uh, uh, an identity. They desire to be protected and wanted. And it's twisted evilly like this. They're given uh, a family, other people that seem to kind of take care of them. They're given support. They're given a place to live. And that leads to things like abuse. 
It, le it leads to things like them needing to pay for their rent or their bills or being threatened to be thrown out, out, out into the streets again or the fear of being rejected by the only people that ever have cared for them, cared for them. Or being threatened that they'll be turned into the police, that if they ever uh, leave their pimp, that he will turn them into the police and, and they'll go to jail. So that continues to lead down this, this, this downward spiral into things like uh, being addicted to substances, alcohol and drugs to, to numb the pain so that they can get through their jobs or their lives. Or they have kids and they have to take care of their kids so they sacrifice themselves in order to provide for their kids. Thus, they need to stay in these horrible relationships and are threatened that if they ever leave, that they'll either be killed, they'll be abused, their family will be killed, or again, they'll be turned into the police and, and thrown in jail and then won't be able to take care of their kids. So what I want us to see is, is similarly to what's going on with Sarai, that she is a, a victim of circumstance, a victim of the, the, the time and the place that she's living in and people with great power over here over her that are oppressing her. Similar to her, uh, many of these victims in prostitution and sex trafficking are really that. They are victims. They're not criminals. They're not people that we should hate and despise, but rather those that are, are similar to us and that we should have sympathy for and, and want to help, especially as Christians. So a few ways to, to fight against this. This is not going to be what, the, what this sermon is mostly about, but um, I will post something on the table. If you're more interested in, in educating or learning more uh, on this topic or on uh, ways you can get involved and can help, but just a few quick things that we can do. First thing is stop looking at porn. Mostly a guy issue, but now not really a, just a guy issue anymore. Uh, but pornography feeds this monster. Pornography is what leads to this happening. No guy who, who goes out and hires a prostitute or who, who buys a child for these horrible, evil things just decided to one day. It's a long, dark, dark road that led with pornography that led to worse and worse and worse stuff until it became, until it led to that point. And not only that, the images that you're looking at are rarely consenting adults that, that, that love what they're doing. It's often that same story that I just described. They were underage, they were brought in early, they were drugged, they were abused, and they just have no way out. So you might think that looking at porn in the darkness of your dorm room or, or something like that, it's actually a victimless crime. It doesn't really hurt anyone. I'm not actually uh, hurting someone, but it's actually a horrible lie, and it actually feeds this. If there wasn't a demand for sex trafficking, there wouldn't need to be a supply. Second thing, educate yourself. You can, uh, I mean, there's lots of fantastic websites or organizations, faith-based ones, Christian ones um, as well, that you can learn about this so you can begin to see the, the, the true problem and not just see them as uh, people you despise or people that are um, criminals, but rather see them as victims and see how we as Christians and as a church can help. Also supporting agencies like Breaking Free, like I shared, which is a local agency that helps women who are uh, rescued out of sex trafficking. And there's some great international ones, Shared Hope, as well as another one called Nightlight, which uh, after it rescues people, I believe out of Asia, I think Thailand or the Philippines, um, protects them, gets them in a safe place where they can't be recaptured or, or stolen or abducted, and then gives them a way to uh, support their families. So, so they make jewelry and clothing, and then you can 
we can purchase that, which helps provide uh, income for them so they can support their families and not have to go back to that. So lots of organizations out there that do something like that. So you can look at those. Or another one, a local one, that you hear a lot about here at Hiawatha Tapestry, which is a family resource and pregnancy center in, in our city, just a few miles from our building. And so we partner with them often, and they help a lot of these, these orphans and widows, these people who, figuratively, who, uh, these people who don't think that they have resources, maybe are pregnant for the first time or are now homeless with a young child and feel like they don't have any options and they're either coming out of that lifestyle or are being tempted with seeing that as the only option. So we're, Lord willing, going to have a 5K to help raise some funds for them and support them later on this fall. So you'll be looking out for that. And then finally, and most importantly, just because it's last, don't neglect it as we can pray. Do not fool yourself into thinking that prayer isn't important or that God can't begin to fix this solution or bring about uh, relief to people who are suffering or save people out of that. Don't, don't fool yourself into thinking that you care about these girls, these victims, more than God does. And so let us not be a church that's all about talk but never once gets on our knees and asks God to, to bring about justice and protection and, and, and salvation for many of these victims within our city. God, throughout the Bible, is called, calls himself a God of the fatherless, a God of the oppressed, a God of the people who are hurting. All right, so now let's continue on with our story. So we kind of set the stage for what's going on. Okay, so Abraham goes into Egypt foolishly, and then with great fear comes up with this great scheme to pimp out his wife in order to save his own skin. So let's, let's unpack the folly and the sin that just surrounds this story. And again and again, we're going to see not just one area, but many areas of mistrust and foolishness and fear and pride that lead up to Abraham's great sin of pimping out his wife. So look at what Abraham did. Even though, even though Abraham did everything he could do to screw up God's covenant. Remember, God promised Abraham... I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you lots of offspring. I'm going to put you, I'm going to give you a country. And through that, through that country, through your offspring, all, all the families, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And look how Abram does everything he can to screw that up. So first of all, like we said, he wasn't, he wasn't even commanded to go to Egypt. At the beginning of this chapter, he was commanded to go to Canaan, but not to Egypt. And rather, he goes to Egypt because... He's mistrusting God will provide for him, right? So he's in the land where he's supposed to be. God says, I will provide for you. God says that I will take care of you, but there's a famine. He mistrusts God, and Abram leaves. So now they're not in the land. Big problem, right? More problems continue. He was afraid, so as he's going into Egypt, foolishly, like he shouldn't have, he's afraid. And again, fear is not sin, but it can lead to sin. And look at what? He does. Through his fear, he mistrusts God's promise to him. God promised him, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. But Abram, Abram mistrusts God. He said, my fear is overtaking me, and I think the people that are going to curse me, the people that are going to uh, want what's mine, want my wife, they are going to get it, and they are going to kill me. God, you said you're going to protect me for them, but I don't believe you. So I'm going to do this horrible act to take matters into my own hand. And in fact, Abram was supposed to be a blessing to the nations. 
but instead he is now the agent of curse. So a curse is actually brought upon Egypt. The plagues come upon Egypt because of Abram. Thirdly, he doesn't protect his wife. As a coward, he asks his wife to sin and to manipulate and to deceive people and Pharaoh. And essentially, he traffics his wife. Fourthly, he does not promise, or he does not trust God's promise for protection and provision, but instead he gives up his wife, the one whom the promise is supposed to come through. So not only all those other really bad things that he's, that he's done, but he also, God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. It's going to come through Sarah, and all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And he says, well, I'm going to give Sarah. I'm going to give Sarah up. I'm going to put her, I'm going to give her up to a foreign king. He's going to be in her household. And now all hope is lost. So at the end of verse 16, if we'd stop right there, we would think, what's God going to do? Is he going to do another Noah-type thing and just start over, say, Abram, you have completely ran away from me and rebelled and, and screwed this up in every possible way, so I'm going to find a new person to covenant with. Maybe he could have done that. But at the end of verse 16, it's very, very dark. It seems like all hope is lost. His wife, Sarai, she's imprisoned in a pagan king's harem, and the promise of offspring in the great nation seem now impossible. And they're out of this land that God has given them. Yet, it doesn't stop God's plan. Verse 17, but God steps in. Six verses of Abram's foolishness and folly and sin and rebellion and fear, and then God shows up. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him and his wife and all that he had. So God steps in and protects Sarai. Where her earthly husband fails miserably, her heavenly husband does not fail her. He steps in and protects her and saves her and avenges her. God brings about judgment via plagues onto Egypt and Pharaoh in order to show them of, of their sin in order to get Abram and Sarai back into the land, foreshadowing an even greater rescue that God would have, an even greater salvation we'll see later on in the story in the book of Exodus where God actually uh, saves his people out of oppression and out of slavery in Egypt later on in the book of uh, Exodus, the next book after Genesis. We see that uh, the seed, the offspring, the people, the promise, all are saved. God steps in, and all by himself, while, while Sarai is imprisoned, while she is a slave in a pagan king's house, and while uh, Abram has completely turned his back on God, God steps in and makes sure the promise and the covenant are saved that Abram nearly destroyed and again, and again, and again, and again, we're going to see the same pattern. We're going to see Abram and his family and his descendants fall flat on their faces. We're going to see them rebel against God. We're going to see them mistrust God. We're going to see them say, we know better than God. Or our fear is, is drowning out God's promises to us. 
But again and again, and again and again, it will not thwart God's plan. When they are unfaithful, God will be faithful. When they are untrustworthy, he will be trustworthy. When they will be weak and fail, he will be strong and victorious. And when they forget, and they will forget again and again in the book of Genesis, he will constantly remember and remind them of his promises towards them. So some of you might be thinking right now, seriously, God lets this guy off the hook? Really? God chooses to associate with this guy, this guy that's so cowardly, he doesn't protect his wife, and he pimps her out, and he gets rich over it after totally rebelling against God and forgetting all of his promises. God still chooses to use this guy? God still chooses to forgive this guy, to associate with him? That's not fair. That's not right. If this were to happen today in America, this guy would go to prison for decades for what he did. Or others even argue that in, in ancient times like this, adultery was the ultimate sin. It had a, it had a capital punishment. And so if you would uh, take someone's wife, you'd be, you'd be killed. A lot of people think that's what's going on, and that's why Pharaoh's getting so worked up about it. He's like, hey, I didn't know that that was your wife. That, that's a sin that's deserving of death. So why would God still forgive this guy? Why would God still use this guy, associate himself with this sex trafficker, this pimp? A lot of people, maybe even you in this room, say, this is why I don't like the Bible. This is why I don't like Christianity. Because you have these heroes of the faith and they do these horrible things. These horrible things and you just kind of gloss over them. Or you say, well, he was Abraham, so he kind of gets a free pass. Or it wasn't that bad. And if that's, if that's your gut response, just know that you're not alone. Knowing that what we saw on a human level that just happened there is disgusting, is evil, is horrible. But also know God, God chose to put this story in Genesis. He chose to put Genesis 12, 10 through 20 in here for a reason. And he also last week chose to show us that Abraham, again, he wasn't a good guy. He wasn't a righteous guy. He wasn't a holy guy. He wasn't even a worshiper of God Almighty. He was a worshiper of demon gods, false gods, pagan gods, idols, and God saved him out of that. So why does God show again and again that Abraham's not a great guy, yet he wants to still use him, yet he still wants to covenant with him? Why is God doing that? Why does he want Abraham's descendants that would read this book originally? And why does he want us as well to know about the great sins and folly of this great father of our faith? It's because he wants us to show, he wants to show us the nature of his salvation. He wants us to show us that we're saved, we're blessed, and we're used by grace alone, not by works. Remember, last week, Abraham was called while he was sinning. This week, God saves him while he is rebelling. And for the rest of Genesis, we're going to see God chooses to use him and bless him and bless the nations through him despite his sin, despite him failing again and again and again. But if this angers you and you can't get past this, it might be a symptom that you're not really 
understanding or believing the gospel. Again, what, what we did saw was horrible, and it should, especially on a human level, anger us. But if we can't get past the fact that God forgave him, blesses him, and uses him, it probably means we're not really understanding the gospel. It probably means that we think that, hey, I'm better than this guy. I'm better than this guy. So why is God forgiving him? Why is God using him? God shouldn't use the worst of the worst. God shouldn't save sex traffickers. God shouldn't save people who use their power and influence to abuse and enslave others. It's probably, if, 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 if we end up there and stay there, it's probably because we're not really understanding our own hearts. We're not really believing the gospel that God saves not great people, not great prophets or priests or kings, but he saves people who are on their hands and knees making sacrifices to demon gods or people that are pimping out their wives or people that are enslaved in a king's harem and have no hope of ever getting out. That's our God, and that's his salvation. This story, the full story, where we see God, where we see God intervene at the end, this story, it's great news for sinners. If you're a sinner... The story gives you great hope. Man, I'm a lot like Abram. Man, I'm a lot like Pharaoh. Man, my situation is a lot like Sarai. But that doesn't stop God. It doesn't thwart him. He still saves. He still comes through. He still pr- protects. The story is great news for us today. It's a perfect example for us today. Maybe today you think that your sin defines you what you've done, what you are doing. Maybe you think that your past defines you, what's been done to you, or what you have done. Maybe the abortion that you had, the eating disorder you can't seem to kick, the sexual abuse that you've suffered, the addictions that you can never overcome, the lust that consumes you daily, the anger in your life that leads to you doing and saying horrible things the constant doubt you have about God and his goodness or his provision or whatever sin that brings you to despair, you maybe think that that defines you. But it doesn't. Our story today teaches us that even the worst of sinners, even the guy that sells his wife for profit to an evil pagan king, that God can overcome that. That that person can still be forgiven. That person can still be used by God. Some of us today believe God does forgive our sins and forgive what we've done in the past or what's been done to us in the past, but we don't feel like God can use us. We feel like damaged goods. We feel like we're too dirty. We feel like we're too evil. Maybe we get the forgiveness part and kind of live out of that, but God could never use me. But look at our story today. God doesn't just save and bless and protect Abram here, he continues to use him. As we see the rest of Genesis, God continues to use this this messed up guy. And he can use you today. God says he still wants to use you. He still wants to bless others through you. He still has a plan for your life. Through the gospel, through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, putting trust in that, God can now and will now forgive you, bless you, and use you.
2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ, he is a new creation. Listen to that language. I'm no longer a victim. I'm no longer a, a, a sex trafficking victim. I'm no longer an abuse victim. Or on the other end, I'm no longer someone who sold my wife. I'm no longer someone who lives in complete fear. I'm no longer an addict. I'm no longer, no longer a victim. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The old has passed away, and the new has come. This may be the first time that you're hearing this ever, or maybe you thought you were a Christian, but today, after getting so angry at God's forgiveness and grace, you're realizing, maybe, well, maybe I don't really believe the gospel. Maybe I really think God has saved me because I'm a pretty good person. I'm a lot better than Abram. I'm a lot better than a lot of people in this room, and so God should be pleased with me, right? God should save me, right? But maybe after hearing this story, you're realizing, wow, I'm putting my faith in, in my own goodness. So whether that's you or whether you're not a believer today and you're just learning about Christianity or someone brought you here this morning, that is what Jesus offers you today. He says you, you no longer need to have an identity as a victim, as, a, as an abuse victim, as someone who struggles with, with addiction, as someone who uh, just has problem after problem after problem. But Jesus offers you today a new identity. Put your trust in him, repent of your sins, and believe, and he will make you a new creation. Not just someone who's forgiven, not just someone who's saved, but someone who will continue to bless and continue to use to spread his gospel to this world. The Gospel Transformation Bible says, Above all, we are reminded that our foibles and failures, grievous and tragic though they may be, they do not define our usefulness to God. Indeed, God seems to be specifically drawn towards the weak and the sinful, for it is precisely such people who are most open to his saving and empowering grace. People who think that they're really important and really great often don't realize their need for God. If you're really successful, if life's going really great for you, if you think that you're really great stuff, you're probably not going to realize your need for God. But when you're sitting in a harem with, with no hope of ever escaping, feeling like a slave, or whether you've just given up your wife and, and totally ruined, in your mind at least, all the promises God has just given you, either way, God still can bring forgiveness and can still use you. Believe that today. If God can save and use someone who sex traffics his wife, then he can use and save you too. Again, what makes Abraham great is not his deeds. Obviously, we can look at this passage and say, oh, of course it's not his deeds. He does do some, some great stuff later on in the story. But if you notice, what the New Testament says about him, as well as how the book of Genesis describes it, Abram is great not because of what he did, but because of his faith. Because he trusted God. We saw it last week where he he left all of his comfort and security and went to a foreign land. And he's uh, praised for having great faith to do that. This week, we see big fat fall on his face. But the New Testament speaks about Abraham having great faith. And that can be hope for us for today. At the end of chapter 12, what do we see Abraham doing? We see him humbled. 
We see his mouth shut, showing, that he, showing his guilt. And we see him quietly walking back to the land that God has promised. Showing repentance, showing that change is coming, showing that he's putting his faith back in God Almighty for the covenant that he has made with them. Galatians 3 speaks of Abraham. Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. So again, why, why was Abraham righteous? He wasn't a great guy. Why was he righteous? Because he trusted in God. He made horrible sins. He was going to fall on his face some, some more, but he was righteous because of his belief in God, because of his trust in God. That should be great comfort for us today. For those of us who tonight are going to fall on our faces or next week are going to have doubts or in a few years begin to wander from the faith. There's hope that it doesn't have to do with our great works, but it has to do with our faith. Verse 9 then, speaking to the church, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Remember what was going to come through Abraham and his great name and his, his great nation and his offspring? Blessing. Blessing was going to come to the entire world, to all the families of the world, to all the nations of the world. And that was going to come through his offspring. Offspring singular. And who is Abraham's ultimate offspring? Jesus Christ. So that's why in Galatians 3, 9 they can write, so those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Through faith in this offspring, now the entire world can be blessed. So two things for us as we leave today. The first one, Leave today in worship as, we've, as we contrast Abram with our God. I want us to see Jesus as the true and better Abram. Where Abram failed again and again and again and again today, let us see our God, Jesus Christ, and how he is the true and better Abram. Where Abram failed, see Jesus and his victory Jesus is a true and better Abraham who trusted God as he left his heavenly home to go into a foreign land. And even amidst fear and terror, Jesus didn't lose faith in God, but continued to be obedient. And instead of giving up his bride to save his own skin, Jesus gave of himself to save and protect his bride, the church. And secondly, See yourself today in the characters of the story. See yourself today in Sarai, if, if there's some situations in your life where you do feel like you're entrapped or you've been abused or you feel enslaved to some type of circumstance in your life, and see God as the God who steps in and rescues you, forgives you, makes you a new creation, makes you clean, and uses you. And probably harder, but we need to do this. We need to see ourselves in Abram. We need to see ourselves as the villain of this story. Just like Abram, we too, we use people for our own benefit. All the time. Whether we want to admit it or not. We use people for our own benefit, our own selfishness, our own lust. So whether that's uh, using someone as a means to an end, whether it's just to make ourselves look better, or whether it's something even more evil, like how we talked about today, of, of using someone, creating or making them into an object, to get our own pleasure out of it, all the way through other horrible things. In our hearts, we use people. All the time, we use people to get something out of them. So let us see ourselves in Abraham as a God who saves us from being 
just as evil as him in our hearts. Secondly, we too, we let our fears drown out the promises that God has given us. If you're a Christian here today, sometime in your life, hopefully recently, hopefully often, you have, you have heard what God has said about his gospel and about you, and you believed it. You believed it. You've said, that, that's true. That's true of me. That's true of him. That's true of his character. That's true of the gospel. Yet the fears of the world, anxiety, circumstance, our own fallen nature kind of come up and, and drown out these truths that God has. We mistrust God, who's the only trustworthy person in the universe. So just like Abram, whose fears made him forget God's promises, we too forget God's promises all the time. We believe the lie, God can't protect me, just like today with Abram. God can't protect me, thus I must do fill in the blank. Or God can't provide for me, just like in our story again today. We say the same thing, God can't provide me, thus I must. And then we do something sinful or apart from God. Or finally, and we're going to see this again and again and again with Abram and with his, with his descendants, God's promise is up to me. God's promise is going to happen. Okay, I'll, I'll buy that, but I have to step in and do something. I have to make it happen. So I'm going to do sinful means or means without faith in order to reach about the end. Abram, he had no child, but he was promised a family. He had no soil to cultivate, but he was promised land. He was promised blessing, but he experienced famine in the land. He lived with promise, but experienced only toil upon the earth that the Lord had cursed. Genesis 5. In short, Abram was forced into dependent trust in the Lord. Then, as now, it is in the crucible of life when all hope seems to have fled. Think Genesis 12, 16 today. When all, see, when all hope seems to have fled, that the path is cleared for God to work supernaturally. It is precisely at the moment when we despair and think we have nothing to offer the Lord that he can truly get to work on our hearts and through our lives. And finally, too, just like Abram and Sarah in this story, we too are exiles. We need God to intervene, to save us, and to bring us home. So we long for the day when Christ returns. We long for the day when the new heaven and the earth come. And we live as people who, who need his salvation, who need him to show up, who need him to save us, to cleanse us, to forgive us, to bless us, to use us, just as we saw in our story. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Genesis 12. God, we thank you that in both situations, whether we are a slave in a harem, unable to get ourselves out, or whether we are the evil person that's given up our wives and lived in fear and selfishness and lust. Either one, either situation, God, you are a God who forgives that. You are a God that brings salvation even to uh, these type of people. People without hope and people that are so evil. God, help us to see ourselves in the villains and then because of that, see your great salvation. Help us to be people who thank you God, for saving us from slavery and from our evil hearts, our evil hearts that are full of lust and selfishness and fear. God, we pray, too, that your gospel would go forth in this city and this world and that you would bring about uh, freedom and salvation and healing to the many who are physically uh, enslaved today. Help Hiawatha Church and its people 
through the power of your spirit to be agents of healing, agents of the gospel in our city and beyond. Pray this in your saving name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we respond together with grace alone.